Hey everyone, this is Abby Martin. You're listening to the audio version of this episode, which you can watch at youtube.com slash empirefiles. Last month, the second Biden official resigned publicly over the administration's role in the Gaza genocide. Tarek Habash had worked in the Department of Education for nearly three years after being appointed as the special assistant to the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development, where his work focused on student loans. In his resignation letter, Tarek wrote, I cannot represent an administration that does not value all human life equally. I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives. Tarek, welcome to the Empire Files. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. So you were a senior official in the Biden administration. A lot of other people working in the government in some capacity has come out um, anonymously to criticize the administration for its stance on this issue. You chose a different path. You resigned publicly in protest. That's a pretty huge decision to make that, um, you know, could affect your career in the future, Tarek. What made you feel like this was the only thing that you could do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me personally, you know, it took a lot of time just to get to that point. You know, I, I really do believe in our institutions. I believe in the work that can be done on behalf of millions of Americans through uh, public service. And, you know, I tried to use the channels that were available to me um, just to make a difference. You know, I worked on education issues primarily on higher education, student loans and racial equity issues. And that was really important for me to identify the intersections of my work and what was happening on an international scale to have conversations with my peers, with my colleagues, with my superiors and with the White House um, to emphasize the importance of the communications that we were engaging in as an administration, but more broadly, understanding my concerns and the risks to, um, to innocent lives that we were seeing day after day on social media. And throughout those conversations, you know, trying to use the channels available to me, it was clear that there was really an unwillingness to really shift in both the language that we're using and the policies. And the only real pathway to try and affect change at a higher level for me was really to grab a bigger microphone. And that meant resigning, doing it publicly and, you know, having a conversation, you know, whether it was with the administration, whether it was with press, whoever it might be, to really emphasize how important it is in this moment that we, you know, preserve our humanity, that we do the things that, you know, President Biden had talked about when he was campaigning to, to enter office, about bringing, you know, normalcy to the Oval Office and to bring, you know, a reasonable-minded person who understands the importance of human rights and, you know, the person who has been empathetic in other areas of international policy in the context of like Ukraine, I think like there is like a disconnect and a dissonance for a lot of us Palestinians and Arabs in the world when we see that level of humanity being given to another group of people. But, you know, it's 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 reserved only for them or not for us, at least. And I think that's really hard, especially when you're inside having these conversations and, you know, your peers and your colleagues have that level of empathy, but our policies and our language that we use publicly don't reflect that. 
So you simply felt like you couldn't operate in that capacity any longer and that you were reaching several roadblocks in terms of this widening disconnect between the uh, administration and your colleagues who seemed to be empathetic with you. You said that you did have a lot of meetings and discussions um, to hear what you were thinking and feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, this was not an overnight decision that I made. This was the culmination of months of conversations. And, you know, like there was a, there was a reality that there was a disconnect between me, my colleagues at the Department of Education, and more broadly, hundreds of, you know, administration staffers across dozens of agencies who did not feel like the administration's current policies in the region reflected, you know, their shared interests and values. And, um, and I think we've seen that come out in various types of dissent that you talked about, anonymous dissent through letters, through vigils, through uh, attending protests, and you know, a lot of other things in between. It does seem like this is reflective, obviously, across the country. Uh, it's not just internally. There is an unbelievable movement taking root, not only in this country, but around the world with millions of people doing direct actions in the streets every day. I mean, you can't be a politician and give a public talk right now without it being shut down by pro-Palestine or ceasefire advocates here. How do you explain this? Because it does seem, it, it seems bizarre, frankly, that there there's kind of this unmoving nature of the federal government to completely ignore the will of the people. And it's not just protesters. The vast majority of Democratic voters support a ceasefire and the majority of Republican voters. So something's breaking through this propaganda matrix from, from the mainstream media and, and people are understanding directly what their own eyes are telling them. But still, it seems like there's this unmovable policy, unshakable bond between the administration and Israel. How, how do you explain that when it's so counterintuitive to Biden's reelection chances? I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. There's this huge disconnect between the American people, between voters and our elected officials. I think we have seen that in the response from Americans taking to the streets in the tens of thousands and numerous cities across the country and hundreds of thousands here in D.C. Um, on on multiple occasions. I think like the reality is that Americans, for the first time, are truly understanding the historic oppression for over 75 years that Palestinians have really felt every single day. And they're seeing it with their own eyes because of the growth and exposure of social media, because of things like Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. And the fact that, you know, there is such a diverse way that people are consuming media and news and current events in 2023 and in 2024, that there's this opportunity for people to really understand what is happening across the world and the reality that people are also suffering here. People are not in all circumstances like benefiting and reaping the rewards of like Bidenomics and all of the all of the things that the administration is touting. And I think that, you know, that plays a really important role when you're also talking about the administration sending supplemental aid in terms of like military funding to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars annually to Israel to commit the horrific atrocities that we are actually watching every single day. 
And so like that dissonance, when people know that, you know, they're struggling to put food on the table, they don't know if they can pay for gas or medication for their kids. You know, they're suffering under the weight of student debt. They're watching the environment completely change before their eyes. And we're seeing more natural disasters every single year than the year before. We're seeing record temperature levels in January. You know, I think just last week, it was 70 degrees outside in DC, just unfathomable types of things that we are experiencing every single day. And we're not allocating those resources to fixing issues that Americans are feeling at home. And instead we are saying here is a lot of money for weapons that are being used against innocent civilians. Americans don't see value in that. That is against our ideals. It's against our democratic views and beliefs that are instilled in so many of us. And I think that is the disconnect between our elected officials, both Democrat and Republican, and what Americans are really feeling this moment. It is a grotesque bipartisan uniformity on this issue specifically. And it it seems like there's no avenues whatsoever to reach our politicians to reflect the will of the people. Um, And as you mentioned, I mean, as Americans are struggling more than half of Americans struggling paycheck to paycheck, have n- nothing in savings, watching money, hard-earned tax dollars being sent to subsidize a genocide in our names. It's kind of unfathomable and bizarre. I mean, I I just have to really entertain like how how wild it must have been to be in the administration working specifically on something like student loans, which is something that Biden talked about during the campaign. Um, talked about about the nature and the need to have an incremental relief set up um, for people making a certain, you know, under a certain income bracket. Um, obviously, Biden's stance on student loans set him apart from a lot of other politicians, obviously Republicans who don't want any relief with student loans. You were working diligently on on this for a while, Tarek, and it's just so amazing that, you know, we're told often that we can't afford debt relief for so many things. We can't afford universal health care. We can't afford just a complete, um, you know, relief for all student loan debt. And then you see something like bypassing Congress to send these weapons without the proper protocols going through the vote. I mean, I don't think that Congress would have denied the ability to send weapons, but just the sheer fact that Biden used his executive power to bypass Congress and do that I think really speaks volumes. And I think it shows the American people, if there's a will, there's a way. And why is there a will to subsidize these atrocities and and apartheid and genocide and not to help relieve the burden on the American people right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you said it exactly right. The reality that Americans are seeing is that there is a will to do something and not others. And with respect to student debt, I think there are a lot of really technical components within the authority, but that's not what American voters are interested in. They don't want excuses. They want to see action. And if you're willing to circumvent Congress to provide military funding to engage in and support financially the the horrifying collective punishment of Palestinians and the continued destruction of their homes, their hospitals, their places of worship, you know, 
I think it, it sends a message about where your priorities are, regardless of what it, whatever the reasons are for why, you know, student debt landed the way that it did. And there's certainly still good work happening there. I don't want to discount the important work that the Department of Education is continuing to do. But the reality is for voters, they're seeing it. They're seeing that you're willing to circumvent Congress and do presumably like concerning legal actions with respect to our tax dollars on this issue, but not on issues that actually help us. Right. I mean, you mentioned the 75 years of oppression, and I think people are finally waking up to the reality of the situation. Um, you know, I think Israel has been this necessary appendage for the United States for a long time, and people are are waking up to the one-sided media coverage about this also. As a Palestinian American, it must have been kind of surreal, I would imagine. I mean, for me, it was surreal because I feel like we're just gaslighting is like the tip of the iceberg of, of the phrase that you can even call what's happening. When Biden repeated some of these claims, the 40 beheaded babies, the, the, the hospitals, you know, housing Hamas command centers under every hospital, um, you know, and also telling us to not trust the Gaza health ministry in terms of the death toll. How did that make you feel? I mean, it, it, it just, it's just so disgusting to see the president of the United States repeating these things and gaslighting all of us. Yeah, I, I mean, it was extremely hard. I felt like there was almost like a near daily dehumanization coming from my own government and like an erasure of my own identity. You know, the reality was that we were hearing from the president, from our spokespeople in the White House, um, essentially like anti-Arab racist comments about, you know, whether we are worthy of humanity, whether we you know, can be trusted to actually identify the number of people who are being killed, you know, like that, that type of dehumanization takes a toll on you, on your mental state, on your ability to just go about your everyday life. And so, yeah, it was extremely hard to hear that. And then to subsequently see a lot of these stories, a lot of these statements be essentially like walked back by, you know, Israeli officials by press, you know, weeks later, and essentially just the world moving on from it, because it was inconvenient to the narrative that we continuously hear that Palestinians are less worthy of humanity than other people. And every Palestinian has a story because of this historic oppression. Every Palestinian has roots to the land. Um, what What's your family's story, Tarek? Yeah, um, you know, my my grandparents and many of my aunts and uncles grew up uh, before uh, 1948. I recount numerous stories from my aunt, who was about nine, ten years old, um, before my family was forcibly displaced from Yaffa, um, which is near the water um, in what is now the Tel Aviv area. And I just remember hearing so many times about um, how they had just moved to this new home. They were so excited about it. My grandpa was a shoemaker. He didn't have an, uh, like a formal education and they, you know, loved their community. Their community was diverse. There were Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims, uh, Palestinian Jews who all lived peacefully together. They were friends. And, uh, as like the violence started to escalate, the only reality 
for my family was, you know, they had to leave, they had to go somewhere else to find safe refuge. And um, by happenstance, I think my grandfather was told by some friends that, you know, they knew someone in the East and they had heard it was safe there. And so they started their trek um, to walk East and they could have very easily heard that, you know, it was safe in Gaza too. And, you know, we should walk South. The distance was about the same from, uh, from Yafa to Gaza and from Yafa to where they ended up in the West Bank. And, you know, if they had just heard something different, I might've been in Gaza today. And like, you know, like my family ended up getting separated on numerous occasions. My aunt would tell us about, you know, instances where like they were ended up in groups of two groups of three, she would be taking turns carrying her siblings. You know, my uncle was just a few months old at the time, and my grandma was carrying him with her while my uncle stayed in Yaffa a little bit longer just to see, you know, they were hopeful that they could return to their homes. And unfortunately, 75 years later, that was never a real possibility. Um, They never got to return to their home. They lost everything. And for me and how I grew up here in the States, my family always reminded me that, you know, you can you can have anything taken from you. You can have your possessions taken from you. You can have the shirt on your back taken from you, but your identity, your education, what you learn in this world that can't be taken from you. And education has always been a really critical aspect of my life because of that. That's amazing. I mean, it, it, it's so traumatizing to see a second Nakba taking place. Um, one more grievous even than the previous one in, in terms of sheer numbers, the brutalization, the ethnic cleansing happening real time, live streamed to us. And again, just to be told something completely different from our leaders. I mean, even Israeli officials aren't lying about what their intent is. So it is just perplexing to just constantly be lied to by spokespeople from this administration it's not genocide. They're not targeting civilians. Uh, we're, we're, you know, and then you hear these kind of stories trickling out, which I want your opinion on, of basically just saying that Biden's having a stern talking to, to Netanyahu. You know, he don't worry. He's he's pressuring Netanyahu. He's sternly criticizing the crazy amount of civilian casualties, but nothing seems to be coming of these conversations because the weapons keep flowing. What is happening here? Where where are these stories coming from? Is this all a farce? Like, what is the purpose of these? I mean, I, I know this is all speculation, but what do you think about them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question to ask. I, I don't know what to think of them because we've seen, I think I saw someone like keeping track of every single time there was a story about, you know, the president's frustration with uh, the Israeli government leaders and then Yahoo. And I think like the count was like near 20 at that point, like, how many times can you be frustrated with the conversation and then continue to provide unwavering support financially to the person who you're frustrated with? Like clearly like the frustration has not boiled over to a level where you feel like any sort of like sanction or like use of like your power and influence actually matters. So it feels like you said a little bit like gaslighting here. Like what, what is the real intention here? Is it actually to, to move the policy? Because it doesn't seem like that's been happening. 
Yeah. And, and I just remember when, you know, obviously when Trump was president, it was horrific. The embassy move, the Great March of Return. I mean, the war crimes were stacking up under his administration and he was just green lighting ev everything um, because that was a very uh, egregious move. Um, and, you know, Jared Kushner's connections with Netanyahu. I mean, the list goes on and on. But I remember distinctly when Trump rescinded funding for UNRWA, how shocking that was. And, and I remember Biden clearly drawing a line in the sand. This is a big difference between him and Trump. UNRWA needs to stay because that is a literal lifeline for millions of Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip. Well, shockingly, here we are three plus months in on the heels of this monumental ruling from this international court saying that there is reason to move forward with the genocide case against Israel. And instead of reacting humanely to the massive amounts of ceasefire protests, all of the shutting down of politicians' events, everywhere Biden goes, he's surrounded by protesters. Instead of listening, instead of doing anything that puts pressure on Israel, in the wake of this, he cuts funding for UNRWA. This is unbelievable expedite a genocide. I mean, at this point, UNRWA is literally providing life-saving aid. And to cut that lifeline at this point in the genocide when millions of people are literally starving to death, it's beyond the pale. I, I can't wrap my mind around the decisions that are coming out of this administration. Yeah. I mean, it, it boils your blood to even try and rationalize what the administration is doing in this moment. Not only are they withholding aid, life-saving aid in, in the amount of like hundreds of millions of dollars annually to UNRWA, but now you've seen numerous other countries, some of the largest supporters of UNRWA, including the EU, also cut their funding subsequently. And you're in a situation where the entity that is providing by far the most aid to innocent civilians in Gaza that is managing the largest number of shelters that's providing every aspect of humane support to millions of extremely vulnerable Palestinians who are also being starved by the ongoing horrific violence that's falling on them from the Israeli government and it's just impossible to imagine how anyone sees this as anything other than a continuation of the collective punishment that the Israeli government started, you know, on October 7th. It's, it's unimaginable what Palestinians in Gaza are actually experiencing. And to cut that lifeline for Palestinians that, like, we're hearing, like, without turning that aid back on could lead UNRWA to completely shut down in in a matter of like months, maybe a single month. It's it's extremely dangerous in the context of the ICJ's initial ruling that, like you mentioned, happened right before that decision. It's really, really dangerous. Well, especially since the the UNRWA employees that they claim were involved, um, you know, the, these confessions were extracted with brutal, illegal methods of torture. You know, this is coming from a, a, a state that's gone rogue and lies. I mean, it, I would argue this is like a pathologically lying government. Um, 
you know, Netanyahu is trying desperately to hold on to political power. This is just, it's just spiraling out of control. And to see our government providing support, unequivocal support, no red lines. Um, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. I want to ask your reaction to the I, ICJ ruling because this is this is historic, right? This is the first time in international courts that Israel's crimes are being heard, um, are being tried. It, it's amazing because pro-Palestine activists have been calling for this for decades, and to ha see it finally happening in the context of this genocide, it you know, there's a lot of mixed emotions going on, but. I don't know if you you still are in contact. I mean, I know that you're in the Department of Education, but I'm sure that you you know you probably had contacts across a lot of uh, faculties within the government. Are people alarmed at all at what's going on? Is there? Do you know if pressures mounting, especially in the wake of this ruling? Because this is a big deal. This isn't just about ceasefire protests. Now we're talking about an international court that has standing on the global stage, and it could possibly strike a big blow in the credibility of the United States here. Yeah, I, th I think it already has it had some level of impact and there is some sort of blow here. I think there are a lot of concerns for people within the administration now, or at least there should be. I haven't heard um, from people directly, but I think like the, the reality is that the initial ruling that there's a plausible risk of genocide happening of the Palestinian people and the provisional measures, which I think are historic here. I mean, there are actual like directives from the ICJ to the state of Israel, like you need to stop doing all these things. And even though they didn't explicitly call for a ceasefire, I think the experts who have done pretty thorough analyses of the ruling have pretty clearly said that the only way you can really comply with these provisional measures is by actually engaging in an immediate and permanent ceasefire. And that's not what's happening. And the fact that, you know, this administration's policies actually haven't changed even in light of the the ruling and and even more so now cutting the UNRWA funding is like actually like doing the opposite of like changing the policies in a way that you are acting more humanely towards the Palestinians. I think it creates a real risk of complicity for the United States and every single person in the administration that is continuing to work on these issues without seeing a real substantive shift in policy. I think they should be really concerned. I hope they are thinking about what this means for them as well as just for our country. I've seen both sides actually celebrate the ruling. Interestingly enough, um, the pro-Israel side has celebrated it saying there's a reason why they didn't call for a ceasefire. Um, like you said, the pro-Palestine side is saying, look, all of the genocidal acts that Israel's committing, it basically de facto means that there should be a ceasefire to stop committing these genocidal acts. I did see that in the case of Ukraine and Russia, there was an unequivocal call for a ceasefire. So that has that that precedent has been set before in the case where, you know, I would argue much less evidence of genocidal acts were taking place. Um, how, I guess like, how do you, what do you think about this? Is there, is it outside of like the periphery of the court system? I mean, just the media and the political reactions from inside the inner workings of the establishment, like how do you explain this bias that is so crystallized when it comes to 
Ukrainian civilians and Palestinian civilians. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reality is that we've seen decades of dehumanization and anti-Palestinian racism, you know, pervade our society, our media, the language coming from our government officials. I think that has a real and lasting impact. I think the reality is that we have been almost accustomed to and trained to not seeing Palestinians and Arabs and brown people more broadly as equal of humanity and humane responses. But I don't think that the ICJ decision, you know, goes to that length. Like, yeah, sure, they didn't unequivocally call for a ceasefire, but the provisions and the the voting of the court was so extreme. Like, it is clear that they are saying there is an, an indisputable, like, and plausible risk that genocide is being committed here. Like, that is historic. We need to not, like, forget that that's what's being said and the fact that there are directives, like real provisional measures that are like spelled out about what Israel needs to do to ensure that it is not going to be like or continuing to engage in this plausible risk of genocide. Like that's serious. And that's the reality of the current situation. What's happening is truly horrific to the point that the International Court of Justice has said, you need to stop doing this and you need to stop right now. You're right. We shouldn't give them one inch of this clear victory for uh, the pro-Palestine solidarity movement that is growing by the day. Tarek, um, this is an election year. We're going to be told and browbeaten for the next 10 months that Biden is better than Trump because Trump is who he is, right? And Trump's a criminal and he is an insurrectionist and Biden is not that. You know, look at Gen Z the amount of Arab, Muslim, Palestinian voters in this country. And, and, and again, like the youth, I mean, millions of young people who are disaffected, who don't believe in the two-party system, who feel like they're not being represented, they're on the front lines of this movement as well. I think that on one hand, Biden and the Democrats are just going to hope that everyone forgets, you know, because we have the collective memory of a goldfish. But I think on the other hand, you see people pressing Biden on this real time. And his answer is alarming. I mean, he he straight up told someone who was saying, what are what are Muslim voters supposed to do? What What is your message to them? And he said, I'm not Trump. Trump wants to deport you. And leaving it up to that. Well, look, Biden, there's no worse crime than genocide. And that's what you're facilitating right now. What are young people supposed to do moving forward in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, our vote is extremely valuable. Like I think people have fought throughout history for our ability to be represented. And, you know, you can't lose sight of that. And, you know, Biden says that he's not Trump and Trump is a real risk. I'm not disputing that Trump is a real risk, but you also aren't entitled to anyone's vote. Just because you are the less bad option, you have to make a case for people that they, it is worth it for them to get up out of bed and miss a couple hours of work to wait in line to vote for you. And if you don't give people a compelling reason to do that, if you don't share their values, then, you know, the reality is that people might not come out for you. We've seen that happen before. We saw that in 2016 and Democrats made a huge mistake in 2016, discounting the voices and the votes and the interests of 
huge populations of people that ultimately led to Trump getting elected the first time. You can't make the same mistakes by discounting people and their voices and what they care about. And what we're hearing from American voters, Democrat, Republican, regardless of what state they're in, is that they don't want to see innocent Palestinians be massacred every single day on social media. They believe that Palestinians deserve human rights just like everyone else it here in America and as we advocate for human rights across the world. We don't get to pick who is deserving of humanity and who is not. And if you are engaging in policies and financially supporting horrific atrocities, you can't expect that younger generations of people, people of color who are extremely sensitive to these issues, are going to support you. You have to fight for those voters. And you don't get to just say, well, I'm better than the other guy because the other guy is an insurrectionist. Yeah, fascism is really dangerous. Let's stop that from happening. But you don't get to browbeat us and say, I'm 1% better, so you have to vote for me or you're the problem. We're not the problem. The problem is the ongoing policies. Like you're in power, you're the one whose policies are being enacted. It's your name on the ballot. You get to pick who you want to vote for you or not based on what you do. And right now, what you're doing is not inspiring a lot of people. The polls are showing it. And it's really scary because we're seeing an ongoing like ethnic cleansing and genocide of Palestinians. But the alternative is Trump. And no one is expecting that Trump is going to be better. But neither option is great right now. And, you know, the president, like the president does have some room before the election to make a change in policy, but every single day that he chooses not to creates a bigger existential risk of Trump and a risk to our democracy. So if he really does care about protecting our institutions and protecting our ideals and our democracy, like he has to actually recognize that the risk is the current status quo. Excellently said. I mean, I know this is purely speculation, but why... Look, Biden is his own person, but he is surrounded by a lot of advisors who are highly experienced, highly intelligent. A lot of them were advisors in the Obama administration. It does seem like the foreign policy has gone completely awry, whether it's Cuba normalization, the Iran deal, and now this. It, it does seem like Biden's going more right wing than any previous president has on this. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around it. It does seem very counterintuitive to solidifying his reelection. It should be an easy victory given who he's running against. But it, it does seem like he's shooting himself in the foot because it's not just the protests. It's not just the interruptions at political events. It's the polling that exists right now. In every swing state, he already was dragging his feet before facilitating an overseen genocide. And now, I mean, it doesn't look good. Tarek. So I, it does seem counterintuitive to U.S. capitalism, foreign policy, and U.S.-Israel relations. Israel wants us to have good relations because they rely on, on the United States to subsidize their efforts and their weapons. And, you know, Israeli officials have even said if the U.S. cuts off the tap, the war is over. We're not going to be able to fight this without U.S. weapons. So why is all of, why is this genocide kind of overriding the determination to get reelected from Biden's entire team. It feels like 
you know, logic has been completely thrown out in a lot of ways. It almost feels like an ideologue is making the calls here. And, you know, advisors can go, you know, certain lengths to influence policy. But the reality is sometimes the decision maker is the decision maker. And I, I think in this particular case, it feels unfortunate because it feels like president is out of touch with the reality on the ground. The reality is that current policies are leading to the destruction of, you know, the entire region and to tens of thousands of lives. And we're not seeing progress on the policy front. It's undermining American interests in the region. It's undermining overall security. We're at risk of a larger regional war. And, you know, polls are snapshots in time. But what we're seeing in the poll numbers right now is that this is not to the interests of American voters. So it, it's not totally clear what the rationale is here and why we're willing to risk so much for something that has been proving for months now that it's not actually paying off. Like, what what is it going to take for us to realize that and to make a change? I think it's clear that the the military aspect is an utter failure. Why are we not trying a diplomatic approach or a more diplomatic approach in order to, you know, preserve innocent life in order to return hostages, to return political detainees that are in Israeli prisons? You know, like there are a lot of people who are suffering right now. And I think it's time that we think about how we mitigate that suffering and approach these issues with um, an eye toward long-term peace. It's infuriating to say the least when you see, you know, the only Palestinian member of Congress being censored for just speaking out on behalf of her people. I just hope for an end to the violence. I cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for what you have done for speaking out, for risking everything. I mean, you risked a dream job. You, you put it all on the line to get that microphone. And um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Walter. Thanks so much.